Uh, in his book, uh, Glimpsing the Face of God, theologian and scientist Alistair McGrath points out an obvious truth that most people miss, and he uses the illustration of chemical formulas uh, to point this out. He notes this. Let me read this to you. He says, every molecule of water has two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. And he says the formula H2O, that formula H2O remains true no matter what race of people or what gender analyzes it. Can one really say, he asks, it's not fair to oxygen that there are two atoms of hydrogen in water. So to be fair, there should be two atoms of oxygen as well. He says, you can give two atoms of oxygen if you want to, but if you drink it, it will bleach your insides, if not worse, because that would make it hydrogen peroxide and not water. He concludes by saying, naming and actual reality have a direct connection in physics, even as they do in morality and in metaphysics. What McGrath is attempting to point out is an inconsistency of the postmodern culture in which we live, namely, that we're very willing as a culture to accept that there are restrictive absolutes to chemical structures, but we refuse to carry the same belief in absolutes into our moral framework. Uh, you see, our generation has a problem with the idea that there is an absolute authority on what is and what isn't moral. Now, now understand this. Be, be very careful because what I'm not, I'm not saying that people today don't care about right and wrong. In fact, uh, I would argue that the issue of right and wrong is very much an issue in our p- public discourse today. For instance, many people believe strongly that it's immoral to tell a woman what she can or can't do uh, with her body. Many people believe it's immoral to deny same-sex couples the opportunity to marry. Some people believe it's immoral to wear fur or to eat meat. I mean, the language of morality and the language of right and wrong, that that there are morals, that's very much a, a, a part of our culture today. It's very real in our culture today. The issue isn't whether people care about right or wrong. They do. The issue that's very hard to pin down is this. Who determines... What is right and wrong? On what basis do we make moral decisions uh, and judgments? Who or what is the final authority on right or wrong? Now, 100 years ago, or even 50 years ago for that matter, if you would have replied to those questions by saying, uh, I believe that the Bible is the sole authority on matters of right and wrong, frankly, you wouldn't have met much resistance. That wouldn't have been very controversial uh, at all. But today, if you were to post that on social media, just post it on your Facebook page or tweet it or something and say, I believe that the Bible is the sole authority for all people in all times on matters of right and wrong, Uh, stand up in a classroom, Uh, stand up in your office and say that, and the response will be, uh, it'll feel similar to pulling a pin on a grenade. Boom! I mean, it will go explosive. In fact, many people would argue that it's immoral to suggest that the Bible is an absolute authority on right and wrong. Well, this morning, as we continue in our series that we've been in on the first half of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to encounter another conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. And along the way, Jesus is going to have some radical things to say about the Bible's authority, the Bible's purpose, and the key to understanding Uh, what the Bible teaches. 
So if you have a Bible, turn with me in it this morning to Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll put the verses up on the screen for you. Mark chapter 7. I want to welcome those of you who are listening by our app or by our podcast this morning. Uh, We've been walking through the first half of the Gospel of Mark. We're trying to get a sense of who Jesus is from firsthand, first-generation accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus. You know, and I just wanted to make this point as, as, we, as we go along here this morning. Uh, if you are squeamish about conflict, you may have noticed that throughout uh, the first half of the book of Mark, Jesus has an enormous amount of conflict with religious leaders uh, in Israel. And the reason for that is that wherever Jesus goes, all hell breaks loose. And so if you're squeamish about conflict, just understand that conflict is a part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. It just is. You're going to be offensive to some people because you're a follower of Christ. You can't, uh, you can't uh, stop that. That's going to happen. You're going to be offensive to some people. Some people you won't be. Some people you will be offensive to. Okay? Okay. Let's start reading from chapter 7 and verse 1. The Pharisees... And some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with uh, with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. Just stop for just one second. I just want to say something. When we last left Jesus last week in chapter 6, he had just performed this miracle where he had fed fifteen to 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Incredible miracle that he'd done. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law only see that his disciples are eating with unwashed hands. That is a case study in missing the point, okay? Mark says in verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions. The second time that word tradition has been used in this passage, note that because it's going to be used a few more times. Uh, They observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, And kettles, verse 5. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied. Jesus replied. And man, if if you ask Jesus a question and he says this back to you, this would be very painful. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. (laughs) As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Okay, I'm going to explain to you what's happening in this passage, and I think you're going to see along the way, again, Three teachings from Jesus about the Bible's authority, the Bible's purpose, and the key to understanding the Bible. All right? The Bible's authority, the Bible's purpose, and the key to understanding uh, the Bible. First, as it relates to the Bible's authority, Jesus affirms the Bible's authority. He affirms the Bible's authority. 
Now let's make sure that you do understand what's happening here, happening here because this is all, everything in this passage, is all, it's all very Jewish, and we're predominantly Gentiles in this room, so you probably don't understand everything that's going on here. Jewish teachers and scholars of the Old Testament Mosaic Law had developed these uh, traditions. These, the, the traditions were like laws that went along with the Mosaic Law that God had given Israel. And over time, these laws that they had developed had become, in their minds, equivalent to the law itself. I, I, that's confusing. So let me, let me give you some examples. So for example, um, the law said that God's people were to rest on the Sabbath. Okay, that's fine, but, but what exactly does that mean to rest on the Sabbath? Like, like if that was given to us today, you might have some questions. For instance, could I help, could, could I help my neighbor whose truck gets stuck in a ditch? Could you do that on the Sabbath or is that not resting? Uh, could you cook dinner to take to someone uh, that you know who, who is sick. Could you do that on the Sabbath? Could you watch a Cowboys football game on the Sabbath? Of course the answer to that is yes. That's why they have a, a hole in the stadium. So that God could... Okay, anyway. Uh, so the teachers of the law had laid down a couple of hundred of their own laws about things you couldn't do on the Sabbath to clarify what it meant to rest on the Sabbath. But the problem was those, those laws that they had handed down weren't in the Bible itself. But as I said, they'd become equal in authority uh, to the Bible. This passage refers to them five times as traditions or traditions of the elders. Okay, here's another example. And it comes uh, straight from this passage. God's law required that priests, okay, priests, say that with me. Priests, say it again, priests. Not everyone else, just priests. God's law required that priests could enter the presence of God, uh, that for them to enter the presence of God, they had to go through certain ritual washings and cleansing. Okay? It was a very important part of the worship liturgy. It was a way of saying, God is holy, I as a priest am not, uh, I'm a sinner, and so if I'm going to approach God, I need to be cleansed. But by the time of Jesus, according to their traditions, everybody, everybody, not just priests, everybody was required to wash constantly uh, with water. That's what these religious leaders in this passage are upset about. They're upset that Jesus' disciples were not following, not the law, but the tradition of the elders, which had become equivalent. Uh, to the law by washing before they ate. That's what they're upset about. There's another example in this passage. Jesus refers to this thing. He calls it Corbin. Did you notice that? He calls it Corbin. The law said, the Mosaic law that God had given Israel said that God lays claim on everything that you own. Okay? As a result of that, the tradition of the elders had developed a really wonderful little uh, giving loophole. You could take a piece of property that you own and you could declare it Corbin, which meant an offering to God. Okay? Uh, you could say, I have dedicated, I have offered this property up to God. And what that meant was, according to the tradition of the elders, was that if somebody in your family, if one of your own parents got into economic uh, or financial trouble and they came to you and said, would you help me get out of financial trouble? You could say, well, I would, but I can't use this because it's Corbin. It's all God's. 
And you see, Jesus says that by complying with the tradition of the elders, you've actually contradicted the whole spirit of the biblical principle to honor your father and mother. Now, that's what this passage is about. It's about these human laws, these rules, these traditions that have become equal in authority to the Bible. And I want you to notice, I'm going to bring this down to home in just a minute, but I want you to notice what Jesus says about this, about these traditions, these human laws in verse 13. He says, thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. In other words, when you elevate tradition or uh, what the experts say, or even what your own mind says is right and wrong, to the status of the Bible, you nullify the Word of God. You nullify. You actually render ineffective the Word of God. You take away its power uh, to change lives. Now, I want you to just notice something. Pay very close attention. Jesus says you nullify the Word. He doesn't say you nullify a Word of God. He says you nullify the word of God. He's saying that the Bible is exclusively the authority on right and wrong. But I want you to also notice he calls it the word of God. Not only is Jesus saying the Bible is exclusively the authority on right and wrong, but he's saying that it is an authority that comes from God. So it is both exclusive authority And it is divine. Now, here's what that means. That means that the words of Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, Nietzsche, Marx, Deepak Chopra, Gloria Steinem, Tony Robbins, the Supreme Court, Congress, the President, Anderson Cooper, Bill O'Reilly, or the opinions of the masses on social media do not carry the authority of the Bible. They are neither the exclusive authority on right and wrong, nor are they from God. Now, this also means... That you and I aren't autonomous arbiters of right and wrong. Now, see, it's a popular belief in our postmodern culture that uh, each person should be able to decide for him or herself what is right or wrong for him or herself. Okay, that's what people say. Well, I should be able. Nobody should be able to tell me. I should be able to determine what's right and wrong for myself. Jesus is saying no, no. Each person cannot do that. There is an absolute authority of right and wrong. That authority is God, Jesus says, and he has laid this down in the scriptures. And we are not to add to it, and we are not to subtract from it. Instead, we are to get our lives under this authority. And by the way, I just want to make this point. I've, I've kind of been picking for a moment on people outside of Christianity about things that they elevate to uh, the status of the Bible. But I want to pick on some people inside of Christianity for a minute. You do realize that Christians routinely add things to the Bible that they then uh, hold to be equal to the Bible in authority, and as such, they nullify the Bible. Do you realize this? Let me give you some examples. The Bible says, for instance, guard your heart, for out of it flow the wellsprings of life. Okay, that's great, but what does that mean to guard your heart? Well, some churches or groups of people will say, well, um, that means that you can't go to R-rated movies. 
Some people uh, would say you can't listen to rap or hip-hop. You can't listen to hip-hop music. Neither of which are in the Bible. But in those circles, those rules carry the weight of the Bible. And in so doing, they have nullified the Bible. Let me give you another one. This is a very popular one in the South. The Bible says, don't be drunk with wine. Okay? So some Christian groups will say, you can't drink any alcoholic beverages. Even though the Bible never says that. And in those cultures, those rules become the equivalent of the Bible, even though the Bible never says that. They have nullified the Bible when they add those things to the Bible and make them the equivalent of the Bible. Now, there are many more examples of this, and those of you who are going to be in a city life group, you'll have the chance with your group to drill down on this a little more and come up with other traditions in Christian circles that have become the equivalent of the Bible. But I think you get my drift on how this works. What I want you to notice is that Jesus is affirming the Bible's exclusive authority as the Word of God. And we are neither to add to it nor to subtract from it, but instead to bring our lives under its authority. So Jesus affirms the Bible's authority. Now this is very important. Because I want you to understand, there are many people who would say, well, I, you know, I like Jesus, I, 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 kind of, you know, I kind of think Jesus was a good teacher, and uh, I like some of the things he said, I like some of the things he did, but I'm not, I, you know, I'm not about this whole thing about the Bible being the objective authority uh, over everyone and all people and all times and all places about what's right and wrong. Well, look, I want you to understand, you can't admire Jesus as a teacher, you can't believe in Jesus in any way, shape, or form, and not accept that the Bible is the objective word of God, because Jesus himself said it was. You can't have one without the other. They both go together, because he is here affirming the Bible's authority. Okay, second thing that I want you to see here is that Jesus teaches us something about the Bible uh, as it relates to its purpose. Okay? So he's affirmed the Bible's authority, but I also want you to see that Jesus explains here in this passage the Bible's purpose. Explains the Bible's purpose. One thing that is clear in this passage is that Jesus is really torqued at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Would you agree with me about that? You know what I mean by torqued? I mean like he's angry. You get that? You see that in this passage? That he's really angry at these people. He's angry about this whole thing where they've made all of these traditions equal to the Bible. He's mad about this. He says, you've nullified the Word of God. But in what sense? What does that mean? In what sense have they nullified the Word of God? Well, I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 6. When he quotes the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament, he says this. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. That phrase, their hearts are far from me. What's he saying? He's describing people who could come to church, let's say, And they could sing the songs, you know, their lips move, they could sing the songs. Uh, They could tell you all the right doctrine. 
Um, everything about their life looks perfect from the outside, but he says, their hearts are far from me. What does that mean? What he's saying as it relates to the purpose of the Bible is that its purpose is to create intimacy between man and God. In other words, God wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants to be close to you. That's what the Bible is about. It's about a God who wants to be close to his creation. He wants intimacy with you. Like someone, someone said it this way one time, and I love this little phrase. And I'll leave it for you to think about. You could talk about it in your city life group tonight, what it means. But they, they said it this way, that God wants dancers, not soldiers. God wants dancers, not soldiers. You guys talk about that in your group tonight, what that means and how that elucidates the idea that God wants intimacy with, with people. The problem with all of these people who add things to the Bible is that they think that the purpose of the Bible is to make you feel like a righteous person so you can say, oh God, uh, you have to bless me now because I have lived such a good life. It's like to get over on God. It's to get God to owe you something. I've done this, therefore you owe me this. I've done this, you must honor that by blessing me in the way that I want to be blessed. Jesus is saying that's to miss the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is not to get God in a corner, not to manipulate God, not to control him so he has to bless you and answer your prayers, not so you can feel righteous. The purpose, according to this, of obeying the Bible is an intimate love relationship with God. One of the best uh, illustrations and demonstrations of this understanding of the purposes of the Bible is found back in Exodus 19 and 20. Don't turn there. I'll just kind of tell you what happened. In Exodus 20, some of you may remember this, you have God giving the, do you, anybody remember? The Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, he's giving the Ten Commandments, the ultimate revelation of God's will for how people, his people, how societies should, should live, okay? But where does God give those Ten Commandments? When does God give those Ten Commandments? Well, in Exodus 19, when God brings the people of Israel to Mount Sinai, he says this. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles', on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Now listen, folks, listen to this, because this is one of the most important points in all of the Bible. God didn't come to the children of Israel in Egypt and say, if you obey my law, then I'll rescue you. I'll bring you out of slavery on eagle's wings. He didn't say, if you obey, I'll save you. Instead, he says, after they've been saved, he says, I saved you. That's, that's done. I brought you out of slavery. I released you from the bondage to the most powerful nation in the world. And you didn't even have to lift a finger. You didn't even have to lift a, a weapon. I saved you. Uh, you didn't save yourself. I didn't do it because you were obedient. I didn't do it because you obeyed the law. In fact, you didn't even have the law. I did it because I loved you. Sheer, unmerited grace. That's all it was. And so some of you think, well, huh, okay, 
if I'm already saved by sheer grace, and God has already set his love on me, why in the world would I obey? And religion would tell you, you obey so that you can feel righteous. So that you can feel pride. You obey or else fear, guilt, shame. But what the gospel says is you obey because you love him for what he did for you. Not fear, not guilt, not shame. You're already saved. All of that's already dealt with. You do it because you you love him. You, you, you can't believe what he's done for you. And so you just, you want to obey. He says, God says, this is, this is how you can become my treasure, by obeying. This is how you can treasure me, how I can treasure you. This is how we can have an intimate relationship. This is how you can show your love to me. I've put it in the Bible. It's all there. This is, this is, what, it's, this is what the Bible's about. It's about intimacy. Now, I realize that for modern Western people, the idea of obeying the law and an intimate personal relationship seem very antithetical, don't they? It's like, okay, uh, intimacy and obeying a law don't seem to go hand in hand. But they're not antithetical at all. Let me, and let, me, let me kind of try to explain it to you this way. When I do premarital counseling with couples, like, you know, they're coming in before they get married, and I say, you know, look, I'm going to do, we do about six sessions of counseling with couples before they get married. And one of the things that I have them do in premarital counseling is that I ask them uh, to write down at least 10 very specific expectations of their spouse. Like things that their spouse can do to show them love. And I force them to get more specific than they generally want to be. Like, like here, here's, how, here's how the women, you, women usually start off, you know, like they'll, they've got their list, they bring it in, and they usually start off by saying something like this. I want you to love me always and make me feel appreciated. And I'm like, I'll, so I'll stop and I'll say, no, that is, that is, not, that is not what I want. Okay? What I want is what specifically can he do to make you feel always loved and appreciated? And then she might get real, she'll say something like, oh, well, uh, okay. Uh, like, don't leave your jeans on the floor. Put your shoes in the closet each night and hang stuff up. Bingo. That's what we're looking for. Very specific stuff, okay? And the guy who is in love, right, he's in love, and so he always looks at her and he's like, sure, babe. That's easy. And she smiles cutely at him. And he winks at her, and they both think marriage is going to be a cinch, and I throw up in my mouth just a little. <laughs> and I'm like, just wait, dude. Just wait. Okay? But see, what, what I'm trying to do in this is I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out what is the other person's will. Like, what conveys to them that you love them? I'm trying to get them to hammer it out. Like their ten, what are their ten commandments? You know, how do you show them uh, love? And do you understand, that's what God has done 
in the Bible. He, he said, here's how to show me love. I want intimacy with you. That, Jesus says, is the purpose of the Bible. Religiosity says, just externally comply with the rules. But the gospel is about an inner heart filled with love and joy that wants to passionately, wildly love God and love your neighbor. Okay? And you use the Bible as a way to do that. The Bible is a way for you to know how to love God and how to love people. That's what God is wanting. That's Jesus says, is the purpose of the Bible. He wants dancers. He doesn't want soldiers. All right? That's the purpose of the Bible. So Jesus has affirmed the authority of the Bible. He's explained the, he's explained the purpose of the Bible. And then last thing that I want you to see from this passage, last thing we learn from Jesus about the Bible from this conflict with the Pharisees, here, here it is. Jesus unlocks the Bible's meaning. Jesus unlocks the Bible's meaning. Now, again, I want you to pay very close attention here. Because if you don't get what I'm going to say here, you will never get the Bible. You'll never understand the Bible. I want you to think about this with me for just a minute. Why are the Pharisees and the religious leaders so upset with Jesus in this passage? And really, throughout the Gospel of Mark, why are they so uh, upset with him? Well, remember what the tradition of the elders was for. The tradition of the elders was a way to explain to people what the Bible means. The tradition of the elders said, this is what this means. This is, this is what this part of the Bible means. Do this. Don't do that. This is what the Sabbath means. This is what the Passover means. This is how you honor those things. Okay. When Jesus was just sweeping all of the traditions away and telling his disciples not to follow them, saying to everybody, really, he was saying, don't follow all of those traditions and don't follow these Pharisees and these teachers of the law. What Jesus was doing was he was putting himself in the ultimate place of authority. He was saying, I'll tell you what the Bible means. I am the ultimate revealer of the Bible. I can tell you what the Bible means. And the question is, how could he do that? This is what is so shocking to the Pharisees. Is that Jesus is saying, I can tell you exactly what the Bible means. They can't. How could he do that? How dare he do that? <clears throat> Here's how. After Jesus was crucified, after he was resurrected from the dead, he met with a couple of his disciples on what was known as the road to Emmaus. They didn't know it was Jesus at first. They just thought he was some stranger. We don't exactly understand why they didn't know it was Jesus. In some sense, uh, in some way, he was disguised from them. Uh, but they thought he was just some stranger. And so they start telling him the story about how this guy that they were following named Jesus uh, had died on a Roman cross and he was buried and, and how sad and disappointed they were. And then Jesus says this to them. It's up on the screen, Luke 24. He says, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning, listen to this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, <clears throat> he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying? What he's saying is that the secret 
to reading the Scriptures. The key that unlocks the Scriptures is that you have to see that there is a plot line running through it from the beginning of the book of Genesis all the way to the end. Oh, there, are, there are these stories and there are all these demands and all these rules, but there's a plot line running through all of them. And all of the plot lines, Jesus says, point to me. Unless you see that, you will miss the whole point of the Bible. Do you understand that? Jesus is who the Bible is about. Understand something. Listen to me on this. The Bible is not about you. You are not the central figure of the Bible. Jesus is the central figure of the Bible. Until you see, for instance, that the rock Moses struck in the desert pointed to the ultimate rock, Jesus, who was struck with the rod of God's justice to give us real water of life. Until you see, for instance, that the Passover lamb slain the night before the exodus Until you see that that lamb pointed to Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, who was slain so the angel of death would pass over us. Until you see that he is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the ultimate carbon, the ultimate offering. Until you see these things, the Bible will make no sense to you and will just be a crushing thing for you when you read it, reminding you of all that you're not. And everything you should be will crush you. You'll just walk away discouraged after you read it. But once you begin to see that this book, the Bible, isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And everything in it points to Jesus. You'll begin to read it differently. It will be a joy to read it. And instead of being crushed by it, you'll find yourself amazed by it. Amazed that the one who is the center of the Bible was crushed by God's justice for your sake, for my sake, on a Roman cross. And you will find yourself falling in love with Jesus. And you will wonder, how in the world can I ever show him my love? And the answer will be, it's there. It's all written in the Bible. Bring your mind, bring your body, bring your soul, bring every aspect of your life under the authority of the Bible. And you too can be his treasured possession. You can have intimacy with the God who wants intimacy with you. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, forgive us for our arrogance that when we read the Bible, we believe that the Bible is about us. Forgive us our arrogance. Lord, we bow before you. We stop for a moment now. And we confess to you this morning our sin, our brokenness. Were it not for you, Lord Jesus, when we read the Bible, we would be nothing but discouraged. We would be crushed. We can never live up to the standards in the Bible. But we affirm this morning that you did, that only you could, and that you did. You are the Messiah. You are the Holy One of Israel. You are the Redeemer. And yet, 
You willingly gave your life. You were willingly crushed on a Roman cross for our transgressions, for my transgressions. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's never heard that truth before, who has somehow believed mistakenly that the way to a relationship with you is somehow by cleaning their life up enough, by obeying enough that they could have a relationship with God. Lord, I pray in this moment that you would use the truth of the scriptures that we looked at this morning to drive home to them that the way to a relationship with you is through Christ and Christ alone. And I pray that they would come to a a point, maybe it's in this very moment, maybe it's later today, but they would come to a point where they would understand and accept that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that He is their Savior. Lord, we thank You for the authority of the Bible. Thank You that You've given us Your will to show us how we can love You. Thank you for its authority. Thank you for its purpose. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the key that unlocks the meaning of the Bible. And we worship you now, Lord Jesus. Amen.